for sure. Psalms 51. Our text tonight is in verse number 12, and I'll explain why in just a minute. Uh, I'm sitting there thinking I, I would I'd love to read the entire psalm, but during the course of uh, the message, we're going to read almost every verse of it, and so, uh, so we'll not take the time to do that now, and we'll make a connection with each verse back to our text, which is verse number 12. Of course, this is David, and this is, uh, this is David's great uh, prayer of confession for his sin when he got things right with God, and uh, it's amazing how God can take something so bad and create something so good out of it. And that's what we see here. Uh, after all of these years, we're meeting here tonight and we're reading about uh, what God did for David after the horrible sin that David committed. And so, verse number 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Speak to you tonight about the joy of salvation and uh, specifically about uh, the restoration of joy. You know, we live in a day where there's a lot of interest in restoring things. There are uh, people that are involved in restoring houses. Now, some of them, of course, fix them up and flip them and, you know, uh, is a way of making money, which that's well and good. But others are just interested mainly in restoring it back to its original condition. Uh, I, I've often thought, you know, sometimes you'll see a picture of an old run-down uh, house. You know, Bev and I have got the kind, we like that wraparound porch, and it's like an old farmhouse, and uh, how neat that would be, to, you know, if you had the time and the money to restore something like that. And... Uh, uh, it, it's just interesting. Uh, some people enjoy restoring old cars, and uh, and it's just a fun thing for them. For some people, it's furniture, restoring old furniture. So it can be any number of things, but what we're talking about tonight is a whole lot more important than any of those things I have mentioned or anything else that you can think of. We're talking about restoring, not salvation, but restoring the joy of salvation. You think about all of the money, all of the time, all of the energy put in restoring stuff. And yet, a lot of times the same people that will expend all of that energy and money and time spend no time, make no effort when it comes to restoring the joy of their salvation. You know, I think the logical starting point in this is to think about the joy of salvation, the fact that salvation is accompanied by joy. I've never met anyone yet that said, well, I got saved yesterday, but I, you know, I, I'm, it didn't help my depression or it didn't make me happy. Uh, there's just something about salvation, of course, the most wonderful thing in all of the world, and the joy that, that, that it brings. And uh, when joy is lacking, it's uh, kind of like a warning sign. It's telling us, wait a minute, there is something wrong in our life. If joy is missing, it just ought not 
to be. Well, that's what we see in the case of David. You might look at David and think, well, he had every reason to rejoice. Here's a man that is a king over God's people. Here's a man, you know, that is quite wealthy, a man, you know, that has the freedom basically to do what he wants. But he lost his joy as a result of sin, and he shows us in these verses how that joy was regained. And I want to remind you, we're not talking about joy in general tonight. You know, that's, you know, that's one thing to just be a, a, a joyful person, but we're talking about the joy of salvation. You could say that's the, the delight in our deliverance. And uh, there certainly, it is a delightful experience. And so uh, I can't think of anything more glorious. And so in David's case here, we need to consider, I think, making this personal. And we want to do that, don't we? We don't want to just look back at the historical record and say, well, you know, that was really an interesting story. Because if we don't make it personal, we're not going to benefit out of it. And the first thing we need to remember, uh, in my estimation, is the capacity for sin. You know, we look at David or somebody else in the Bible that sinned against God, and we, you know, we think, well, you know, that's them, this is me. And what we need to understand is what happened to them could happen to any of us because there is no such thing as sinless perfection, over in England years and years ago, in fact, it wasn't long after I surrendered to preach and someone gave me a, a bunch of little booklets written by men who were preachers over in that area and a part of what is known as the Keswick Convention. And they said a lot of good things, but the, the problem was is some of those men leaned very heavily in the direction of some of the old-timey Methodists, in case you didn't know it. Some of the old-timey Methodists, if you go back to the, uh, to the Wesleys, they believed in sinless perfection, that a Christian could so grow and so forth and mature that they could reach a place of sinless perfection. Well, I never met any of those guys yet myself. Have you? No, uh, no because we're, we're, still, we're still imperfect. And it's going to be that way until the day that we die. And we need to keep that in mind, the capacity for sin in our life. Here is David. The Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. Now, we're not going to try to look at the chronological order in which this happened and that happened and so forth. But the fact of it is, is David was a great man before he sinned, before that horrible fall in his life. And David never thought for a second that he was able to live above sin. Now, if David didn't think that, neither should we. If David was not exempt from sin, neither should we think of ourselves as getting to the place that we can be exempt from sin. You've heard people say, you know, and talk about the fact that uh, uh, we Baptists who believe in eternal security, which is what the Bible teaches, that we have an eternal salvation that we cannot lose. And they, people have said, you probably heard it. Well, if I believe what you Baptists do, I, I just sin all I want to. Well, the common answer, as I know you've heard, I'm not the only preacher that said it, is that we do sin all we want to and more. 
because we don't want to sin, but we do. Because of the fact that the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So sin is an ever-present danger in our life. You might be in a church service and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit will enlighten your mind as to some glorious truth in the Word of God. It might be that it'll convict you of some sin in your life and you'll get on your knees before God and you'll confess it and you have great joy in your hope, uh, I mean, in your salvation. And you'll get up and leave the service, you know, with a bold determination. I'm going to go out here and serve God. I'm going to start doing what is right. And by the time you wake up in the morning, there'll be something tempting you to sin. Now, there's a reason for that, and it would take a whole message to go into detail. The reason for it is man's own lust, which is in us. And that James tells us about that. We have the our built-in lust. And even after we're saved, that lust doesn't just go away. It is still there within each and every one of us. And it's either, uh, you know, we've either got it under control with the help of God's Spirit, or it gets out of control and we sin against God. And James said, every man sins whenever he's led away by his own lust. And that is to say, you don't need any outside enticement. The devil doesn't have to do anything to entice you to sin. Now, he does, but he doesn't have to do anything uh, because you already have a problem within, and the problem is the vestiges, the leftovers of that old sinful nature that you've had from the very beginning. And although God has given you a new nature when you trusted Christ as your Savior, you still have those that propensity towards sin. And it has to be controlled by the Lord. Well, I've said so many times, if we're not under the control of the Holy Spirit, we're out of control. Well, David got out of control. And David committed a horrible sin. So we need to think about the capacity for sin being something that affects us just as it did David. We need to think about the cause of David's sin. And we... You know, isn't it amazing how much we can learn from the failure of others? I'm not going to go back and examine the entire story. You're familiar with it, you know. And, and David is out there on the balcony or the rooftop, and he's looking out, and he sees a sees a woman. And, uh, you know, he doesn't just see her, but he continues to lust after her. You, you know, nobody's going to avoid temptation, but we can avoid that that lust that comes from from thinking about the temptation over and over and over again. And so because of that, David eventually, as a result of him thinking about the temptation to sin, as a result, he caves in. And that brings us down to the consequences. This is where the story really gets well, uh, painful. I started to say awful, but the most awful part of sin is not what it does to us, not the consequences to us personally. The most awful part of sin is the fact that it is a sin against God. Sin does horrible things to people and to families. 
But the worst part of it is it offends God. And in this story, we see the consequences, the high cost of low living. And that ought to give us, you know, uh, a reason for serious consideration regarding this because, you know, knowing the value of what we lose motivates us to seek after it. And we're talking about restoring the joy of our salvation. You know, if I lose a penny, now when I was a boy, I'd break my back picking up a penny. Nobody just ignored pennies, you know, back then. A penny was a penny. You'd go down to the store and get some penny candy with it, you know. Well, nowadays you can't hardly buy anything for a penny, I don't guess. But uh, so if if I lost a penny, I wouldn't I wouldn't spend 30 seconds looking around for it. If I lost a $100 bill, I'd be here for a while. I'd, I'd, I'd keep looking and uh, trying to find it. You know, if we can realize the consequences of our sin, if we can realize the importance of the joy of our salvation, maybe that will help us to be more concerned about restoring that joy. And we look at this story here tonight, and I'm just going to look at some verses, and I want to I want to show you the consequences of David's sin. Look at verse number one and two. The first thing is that it soils the soul. David said, "Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of Thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity." Cleanse me from my sin. His soul had been soiled by sin. And that's what happens to every single one of us whenever we sin against God. It soils us. It defiles us. Then look in verse 8. Not only does it soil the soul, but it stings the conscience. He says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. David was troubled. And sin always troubles a Christian. It stings our conscience. If you read what Paul wrote to young Timothy, the young preacher who became the pastor in Ephesus, and you'll see what a great value or price he placed on having a good conscience. You know, every Christian ought to live in such a way that they don't violate their conscience. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he warned them about this because they had the questions, you know, well, is it okay to eat this? Or, you know, can we eat meat that's been offered up to idols? You know, if we wasn't involved in the worship of the idol, we went down to the shambles, that's the marketplace, and we bought some meat that had a really good bargain on it down there. And uh, Paul warned them about that, number one. He said, you, you've got to make sure, you know, that... What you do doesn't offend somebody else, so you become a stumbling block to them. But in addition to that, he warned them about defiling their own conscience. And let me tell you, sin, no Christian can sin without it bothering his conscience. And and the, the most 
horrible, terrible feeling in the world is to go off to church and try to preach or pray or sing or anything else when your conscience is bothering you because you know that you have failed God. So that's one of the other consequences. Look in verse number 8 again. It suppresses the heart. He says, Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Maybe to hear joy and gladness. His heart, that, that, that is the, the place of his emotions had been suppressed as a result of sin. I feel quite sure that a lot of times, you know, we wonder, and by the way, don't take this as a license to go around judging one another. There can be a lot of different factors in this, but sometimes we wonder, well, what in the world is wrong with so-and-so? They, you know, uh, they just, uh, they don't act themselves. They don't have any joy. They're just morbid all of the time. You know, sometimes it might be because they got a migraine headache. It might be because they don't know how they're going to pay their bills tomorrow. It could be a lot of different things. But let me tell you, sometimes it can be the result of sin in their life. It's really hard to get up and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, whenever you know that you have violated His standards, that you have sinned against Him. Boy, I'll tell you, that'll close your mouth quicker than anything. It suppresses the heart. But notice the last part of verse 8, it also sickens the body. Notice what he says. He says, And uh, the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. I don't think any of us have any idea. I don't think anybody understands what an effect sin has on our body. Now, by the way, that's not to say because somebody is sick that they've committed some sin. Because, you know, good people get sick like anybody else. But sin can make you sick. And boy, whenever you read the entire story of David, and uh, there's so many other verses that relate to this very thing, and, and he, he, he talked about a loathsome disease that was in his loins. I mean, whatever you want to label that as, and uh, I won't try to be real vivid about that, but it's a real ugly disease, evidently. And it was the result of sin in David's life, you see, it will sicken the body. It will sire the spirit. Look in verse number 10. Created me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. So it sours the spirit when we entertain sin. Our text, verse 12, tells us that it steals our joy. Sin will take away our joy. Notice verse 14 and 15 it seals the lips. Verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Well, you know, that tells me that he hasn't been praising the Lord. Not during this time before his confession. His mouth is closed. There are no songs of praise. There is no rejoicing. And he's saying, Lord, if you'll just cleanse me, forgive me, restore me, and then, again, I'll open my lips, I'll open my mouth, and I'll praise you. Has that got your attention yet? 
Think about all of these things, the consequences of losing the joy of your salvation. It affects, we go to Proverbs, you ladies ought to be interested in this, it affects your appearance. You know, most ladies have some interest in their appearance, uh, they at least should, just like men ought to have some interest in their appearance to others, and it, sin will affect our appearance. I mean, you think about a, you know, remember where said a cheerful heart is good like a medicine. It has an effect upon our body, but it also has an effect upon our countenance, you see. And so sin affects our appearance, it affects our health, our strength, our testimony as Christians. I, 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 you, every time I think of that, I think about Paul and Silas in the jail there. And uh, at midnight, when most people be sleeping. But remember, they've been beaten, they've been imprisoned with, under false charges. And, you know, most people, if they wasn't sleeping, they'd be what? Complaining. I want to talk to my lawyer. You know, I, uh, th- this just not fair. But they were praying and singing praises at midnight. But the key to that is what? And the jailer heard them. He must have been amazed. I mean, you imagine somebody that's been beaten, roughed up by the cops, thrown in jail, and didn't do anything wrong, and here they are in prison somewhere, and so you happen to walk by the cell, and, and, and they're singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That'd make an impression on you. Made an impression on him. In fact, when God sent the earthquake, he come running in there and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see how important your testimony is? And you mark it down. When you claim to be a Christian, there are going to be people, whether it's your classmates, your co-workers, your neighbors, whoever it is, they're going to have an eye on you. They're going to be watching how you respond to different situations in your life. And if there is no joy there, they're going to come to the conclusion, why in the world would I want what they got? When they are so miserable and so sour and so bitter, if that's what Christianity does to a person, I don't want anything to do with it. But then the worst part of all of this is the fact that it affects our fellowship with God. If joy is normal for a Christian, the absence of it is abnormal, and that means it's going to have a a bad effect on our fellowship with the Lord. We don't lose our relationship with the Lord. Like, you know, I've said so many times about growing up, and I, you know, I'm certain that some of the things I did was an embarrassment to my mom and dad. I, I just feel sure that they were disappointed in what I did, brought shame upon the family name, but I never did cease being anything other than what I was. I, I, I was my daddy's son. I was a stone, and uh, that never did change. Now, sometimes, you know, the relationship between me and dad, our fellowship changed uh he you know expressed his displeasure with me naturally as he should 
but uh, I was still my daddy's boy. Well, I'm glad, regardless of what happens in my life and the extent of my failures before God, there's nothing anybody, including the devil, can do to change my relationship with God. Thank God for that. That never changes. But for us to lose the joy of our salvation and to have our communion, our fellowship, whatever you want to call it, to have that interrupted with the Lord, that's a, that's a horrible thing. Well, consider the cost. Think about those consequences. When we lose the joy of our salvation, any or all of those things can happen to us. And evidently, all of these things was involved in David's sin. I mean, everything that I've mentioned has been straight out of the pages of his life. This is what he's talking about. He's been affected physically, emotionally, and spiritually in every way you can imagine. Well, that brings us down to the cure. What in the world do you do, you do about this? When you lose the joy of your salvation, how, how do you restore it? Well, you know, we could use a lot of different words in trying to describe the sin factor that causes us to lose our joy. We could liken it, for example, unto a crime. Because sin is a crime. It's a crime against God. And you can look right here in this chapter and you can see a reference to that. We could liken it unto a debt. We are indebted. Sometimes we talk about, you know, Jesus paid it all. We talk about him paying the debt, our sin debt. And we can liken sin unto a, 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 a debt, or we can liken sin unto defilement. For, for example, the Bible, don't, don't misunderstand, sin isn't a disease, but sin is likened unto a disease in the bad effects it has upon us. Or you could liken it unto a stain, and David does that. He talks about cleansing. He's defiled or he is stained, and he, he likens it unto that. But there are other ways to think about it. We could think about the cure being a comeback. You know, a lot of times we think about sports and great comebacks. There have been books written about this, in fact. Great comebacks in sports, and they take each sport and tell the story of the greatest comeback ever. But I tell you, I'm a whole lot more interested in watching the great comebacks in people's lives. People that have been down and out and people that, you, that you've written off. They're a lost cause as far as you're concerned. It seems like that they're never going to be restored to fellowship with God. We give up on them. Sometimes we're tempted to, you know, to not even pray for them anymore. Well, thank God. Here's the story of a great comeback. David is showing us how we can get up when we've been down. How we can be restored. We can think about this as being a conquest. It's a picture, in other words, of overcoming. And regardless of how we've been defeated, by the way, by sin, God gives us the power to conquer sin. That's why, you know, we keep saying victory in Jesus. That's where victory's really at. 
the Lord giving us the power to conquer the sin that is in our life, the sin that robs us of the joy of our salvation. So this can be a conquest. But mainly, and I think this is the maybe the best description, the best way to describe it, would uh, to speak about the cure as being a cleansing. And, and I say that because uh, of the things that David says here. He talks about sin defiling us, defiling us in a way that leads to our destruction, not just the loss of our joy, but the destruction of our life. And let me tell you, there's only one way to deal with it. And that's the same way David did. Sin requires forgiveness. Even whenever we have sinned against God. Now sometimes, you know, we talk about the fact that whenever we've been saved, all of our sins, past, present, and future, they are all under the blood. We never have to answer to God for them. And that's all true. And what the old-timey preachers used to call God's judicial reckoning. That is God's reckoning of our sins from the standpoint of Him being the judge and all of those sins, the penalty for all of those sins has all been paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the judicial reckoning of God. They're all under the blood. It's not a matter of getting up there before the Lord and God judging you on what you've done in order to see if you're saved or not. Because your salvation doesn't depend on what you've done. It depends on what Jesus did. And yet the same Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, for example, talks about the fact that we, speaking of us Christians, we'll all appear at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is for Christians. The great white throne judgment is for the unbelievers but every Christian will appear at the judgment seat of Christ, not to determine whether they're saved or not, but deter- to determine the manner in which they've lived their life and the rewards that they're going to receive. So it's important. Somebody says, well, you know, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven when I die. Nothing else matters. I can just, you know, go ahead and freewheel it through life and eat, drink, and be merry and not worry about it because it's all good. I'm going to heaven. Well, I tell you, there's more to it than that, folks. We're joint heirs with Christ and the amount of our reward is going to be determined by what we do down here. I love the way Paul described it whenever he spoke about the stars and the, the, the light factor of the stars being of different magnitudes. They, they all don't shine, you know, at the, at the same magnitude and, uh, they're all different. And, and in the same way, the degree of our rewards is going to be different based on what we do down here. Sin defiles us in such a way that it robs us of our rewards. And that's why the Apostle John said we're to look to ourselves that we lose not our rewards. He didn't say anything about salvation, but he said you can lose your rewards. And it's amazing sometimes what we throw away just for a night of pleasure. I mean, God only knows what rewards we have lost as a result of indulging ourselves in sin. 
So certainly sin, even after we've been saved, sin needs to be forgiven, but it's not for a matter of our relationship, but rather our fellowship with the Lord. And that's exactly what David does. Look at verse 3 again, verse 3 and 4. I acknowledge my transgressions. Well, good for him. A lot of people don't. They just try to cover them up and hide them and go on. He said, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. You see, David is coming clean here. David is confessing the fact that he has sinned against God. But notice he's not only acknowledging that he sinned, but he's asking for cleansing He understands that sin has defiled him. Look in verse number 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David knew that sin had put an ugly stain on his life, and only God could cleanse him. So he has acknowledged his sin, but he's also asking God to cleanse him. You know, Isn't that exactly what the Bible tells us, how we Christians are to deal with our sins? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's something really interesting here I want you to notice, and uh, I'm certainly not an expert when it comes to languages, but Notice the word restore here in verse number 12. This is our text, the first word, restore. The language experts tells us that is what is in what they call the imperative mood. Now, why is that important? If something that is, is an imperative, that means it is necessary. It's of great importance. It's not something that you can have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. And, and, and this, it's important because David is, when he says this, he's letting us know that this is not a light thing. He's not treating sin lightly it, like we Baptists sometimes do. You know, we, it's amazing how, you know, we can sin against God and half of the congregation knows about it and then we turn around and we... Uh, we just want to deal with it in private. You know, I, I believe that only God can forgive sin, but whenever we have failed God, we need to make the circle of our confession as large as the circle of our offense. Does that make sense? If I have sinned against God and I brought shame and reproach on this church, I don't need to go down to some other church or I don't need to go to the neighbors in my neighborhood and knock on their door and tell them, oh, I just thought I'd come by and let you know that I committed this horrible sin the other day. It's none of their business. But boy, if it's known in the church, it becomes your business, you see. And it's not about, people say, well, you know, I, you know, God forgives me. It's nobody else's business as long as he forgives me. Uh, that, that's all that's important. No, it's not all that's important. It's important that we be in good standing before the church. 
By the way, it's not so much a matter of the church forgiving you. Sometimes we word it that way. We say, you know, I committed thus and thus sin, and I just want to come before the church and acknowledge it and ask the church to forgive me. Well, you know, that's well and good, but there's nobody here that's a part of the Trinity. They can't forgive you of your sin in the strictest sense of the word. So what's the purpose of it? The purpose is for your restoration. It's for your well-being. And it's for it, it, in, in the confession of your sin and making that sin, you know, that confession public to those that, you know, that are, are aware of it, we're, we're simply stating the fact that we have failed God, that we've made it right with God, and it gives the church the opportunity to show you their support. Sometimes we think, well, boy, I don't want them to know. Well, they already know. And if they already know, they wouldn't it be good if they knew that you made it right with God? I mean, they're not going to get angry about that. They're going to rejoice about it. Amen. I'm saying like, to say this, David didn't have a take it or leave it attitude, and we shouldn't either. It's a serious matter, and, and that's why whenever he uses a word that is an imperative, in other words, God, this I feel like it's absolutely necessary, it is essential. I won't be satisfied with anything less than this, and that is the restoration of the joy of my salvation. He didn't have a take it or leave it attitude. Well, oh well, I know that I've sinned against God and I want God to forgive me and what have you, but, but I'm willing to go ahead and live in a state of misery because after all I've you know, I fail God and we start throwing a pity party because of our sin against God. And, and I'm telling you, look, if God forgives you, you need to get over it. Well, but God forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. You're not God. Forget about forgiving yourself. That's not your business. It's God's business to forgive. And whenever God has forgiven, you need to accept His forgiveness and move on and be joyful in your salvation. Getting our heart right with God is important. It's important, number one, because of what God does for you. Think about it. God, when Jesus said, I come that they might have life and they might have it more abundant. The Lord's not satisfied with us just, you know, living a, just a very meager, normal, well, that's not the right word, average sort of a Christian life. Average puts you as close to the bottom as it does to the top. There's nothing good about average. We need to be normal, and there's a big difference between normal and average for a Christian. We get it in our mind so many times, there's nothing wrong with me because I, I'm, I'm just your average Christian, so that's the problem, you see. We need to be normal, and it's not normal for us to not have the joy of our salvation. That's not normal. So it's important that it be restored because, you know, God wants more for you than what you want for yourself. He wants you to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. How about that? Or a peace that passeth all understanding. That's what He wants for you. 
And you're letting that sin rob you of those things, rob you of what God does for you. But there's a second factor that we've already touched on. This is important because of what God wants to do with you. You say, well, I didn't know God won't do anything with me. Really? Didn't he say, you shall be my witnesses? Isn't that our mission, that we're to bear witness of, of him? David understood the obligation that comes along with the privilege of being a child of God. And I want you to notice, we've been talking about the cure, but notice that the cure led to his commitment in verse 13, 14, and 15. Listen carefully. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltliness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud. Underline that word aloud in your Bible. Aloud. Some of you have never sang loud in church in your life. Notice, sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. What, what a wonderful thing this is. Notice, here's the key to this. Notice that word then. I've colored it in yellow and underlined it. Then. His first thought after being forgiven and restored to fellowship, his first thought is what? To be a blessing to others. Now before, he hadn't been concerned about anybody but himself, right? The only thing he was concerned about before was gratifying the flesh. He saw some cute little chick down there about half-dressed, and he kept staring at her until finally he used his kingly authority to call her up, and you know the rest of the story. All he cared about was gratifying his old sinful flesh. But now his heart is right with God, and his concern is for the glory of God and the good of others. He said, Lord, if you'll forgive me, if you'll cleanse me, if you will restore the joy of thy salvation, if I can just get that joy back, if I can just be restored to fellowship with you, Lord, then I'll teach transgressors. Some of the best lessons you learn in life are from those that have failed miserably. And the first thing they tell you to to do is to not do as they did. They've already been down that road. They've already experienced the misery of sin. And, and, and they want you to avoid making that same mistake. Whenever we think about our life and think about what God wants to do with us, you know, I've said a lot of times, you know, that no, nobody is worthless in one sense of the word. We don't have any worthless church members, but we got some church members that are, I don't know how else to say it, kind of like useless. Because if we're not doing anything, that means we're being of no use. Am I right or wrong? I mean, wouldn't that be right if somebody's not doing anything, not contributing in any way, not using their time or their talent for the Lord? Uh, 
they become of no no use to the Lord, no use to His church. And that, that's a horrible thing for us to waste our life away. I'll never forget, and I, I wasn't familiar with the song really up until after I got saved. Uh, but I'll, I'll never forget Bev's grandpa. He was, uh, he was the closest thing to a grandpa I ever had. Just a wonderful man, and I'll never forget they would play. Uh, they had the 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 gospel jubilee on TV, black and white TV. I I think it's still black and white back then. The gospel singing jubilee. Anybody ever watch that back then? Yeah, some of you getting up there in years, and you remember you. You remember, you remember watch, watching all of those singing groups of statesmen and the Blackwood Brothers and, and all of those. My, so good. And boy, whenever he'd hear that song, Wasted Years, Wasted Years, Oh, How Foolish. And uh, he, it brought tears to his eyes because he had realized he had wasted away a good part of his life. Bev can tell you more about it than I can, but he didn't get serious about living for God until he was way up nearly dead by that time he had wasted away all of those years folks don't make the mistake of wasting away your life there's too much to live for for you to just cave into the lust of the flesh and to ruin your life you know, it's one thing to not be of any use, but it's another thing to be a positive hindrance. Here's the danger of not getting things right when you know they're wrong. Turn over to Second Samuel, and I'm going to close with this. Second Samuel chapter number 12. You know, it's wonderful that we can be forgiven whenever we sin. Aren't you glad? But that doesn't always remove all of the, all of the consequences of our sin. And notice, notice what he says here in verse 14, 2 Samuel 12. Here's the Lord in conversation with David. And of course, he sent Nathan the prophet speaking to David, and he said, How be it? Now look at verse 13, because you might not be familiar with it. And David said unto Nathan, Nathan's just pointed out his sin, and, and uh, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Wow, awesome. Thou shalt not die. Whew! Got out of it. God's going to let me live. Howbeit, verse 14, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Don't ever be so foolish as to think that your sin doesn't affect anybody but you. 
it can cost somebody else their life. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Boy, I'll tell you what, it's sure in, in very vivid colors. It paints for us a picture warning us that whenever we sin against God, we can be forgiven of the sin that we've committed, but there are going to be some consequences we can't, that we can't change. You might not understand why God did that. He told you. He said you've given the enemies occasion to blaspheme. And so God did exactly what was right. You say, how? That's horrible that God would do something like that. Did God take the life of a little baby? No, it wasn't. God did what was right. God did what was best. You say, how can you say that whenever God let a little baby die? Well, you know, God could have let that little baby live and that little baby just might have done like David did. It might be that he would have grown up hating God, rebelling against God, and die and go to hell. And uh, God took care of all of that. He just told the little baby, come on. Took the little baby on to heaven. That's why David could say later on, said, I can't bring my baby back, but I can go to him. You've heard people wonder, do babies go to heaven? Well, evidently. Evidently, I think that's pretty clear. Evidence right there. But the fact is, our sin affects others. And there's more to it than that. You can go and study the life of David and you think about the problems with some of those kids of David. Wow. And, and, and some way or another, all of that ties together. So, when we lose the joy of... I'm talking to Christians now. When we lose the joy of our salvation, it is an imperative that it be restored or it's going to absolutely ruin us and it's going to hurt others. Headed off at the past. Do something about it while you can. Ideally, we would never lose the joy of our salvation. But the chances are good. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. And I hope that being here tonight and going through this study will give you some insight as how to deal with it when it does. You confess it. You forsake it. And you ask God to help you be strengthened to not repeat that same mistake in your life. Let's all stand. Father, how we thank you tonight for your grace that's willing to forgive us of the ugliness of sin. We're so thankful for that. And the fact that you're not only able but willing to restore us when we've fallen And Lord, you're even able to take the bad things that happen in our lives, the bad things that we've done. And in some way, you can use those bad things in a good way. And tonight, I believe that you've used the story of David in a good way in our lives to remind us and to warn us concerning the dangers of sin. And Heavenly Father, if some of your children here tonight, if they've lost the joy of their salvation, I pray that 
that they think of it as being an imperative that they do something about it, whatever is necessary to regain that joy that others might see it and that their witness before others will be strengthened that would cause others to want what they've got, that being the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in His name. Let's stand.